Targeted True Crime Podcast. We tell stories of those who were targeted by abuse and investigate cases of family violence using academic research to interpret the events. I think we need to stop making family violence a secret. Let's use our stories to help heal and provoke change. Season four features the case of Marsha Brantley, a woman who disappeared in 2009, but was not reported missing until six months later. With new interviews, we'll explore the possibility that Marsha's husband had isolated her through coercive control from family and friends. Targeted True Crime Podcast. Peace, my friends. Peace. This is a Scream Queen production. So dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Uh, happy True Crime Tuesday. Happy Taco Tuesday. Happy first episode of spring. Today's story is one that I have been telling for a long time since the very beginning of Demented Mitten Tours, which we've discussed this quite a few times. Demented Mitten Tours was the first business in my evil empire. Started about five years ago, and it is the one that has taken the biggest hit in the pandemic because obviously we can't stuff 30 people onto a tour bus together. Uh, Hopefully, sometime this year, the tours will be able to return. If not this year, then next year. Just, we'll, we'll be back when it's safe. But anyway, this was the very first story that I told on the very first season of the tours, so it's one that I've been familiar with for a while, and The reason that I haven't covered it on the podcast yet is because I do usually try to keep some distance between stories from the tours and stories from the podcast, but since I have not been able to do a tour in over a year now and who knows when we'll be able to do another one, I thought that I would share this story with you all here because it is a very important piece of Lansing history and it's one that not enough people know about. But you should, and now you will. So sit back, grab a taco or two, maybe a stiff drink because this is a heavy one. It's time for another dead time story. Picture it. Lansing, 1928. Michigan's capital city was at the center of the auto industry boom thanks to a man by the name of Ransom Eli Olds. Born in Geneva, Ohio in 1864, Ransom... What a cool fucking name, by the way. We need to bring that one back. Ransom was a pioneer of the automotive industry. The concept of the auto assembly line is credited to Ransom as are the Oldsmobile and REO brands of vehicles. Also, Rio Town. Rio Town is a vibrant, growing community on Lansing's southeast side with lots of really cool restaurants and shops, including 
a new true crime bookstore called Dead Time Stories that just opened up, I hear. Uh, yeah, that's right. Rio Town is home to my new storefront. But long before that, it was home to Ransom Eli Olds. It was where he built his mansion, which is long gone, his factories, which are still standing, his whole empire. Anyway, with all of these factories going up all over the place, there was this huge surge in Lansing's population because people were coming from all over to work in said factories, which meant that we needed more houses, more schools, more hospitals, more shops, more farms, more bookstores, more everything. So the city was just expanding really, really quickly with people coming to Lansing looking to build a new life. And one of those people was a man by the name of Earl Little. Earl Little was born to John and Ella Little in Reynolds, Georgia, on July 29, 1890, 25 years after slavery was abolished, but long before it was safe to be black in the South. And it definitely was not safe for the Little family. Earl was part of a very large family, so they were the Little family, but they were a big family. He had six brothers and at least three sisters that I was able to find record of. Uh, Family tree records show nine children born to John and Ella, six boys and three girls. But other accounts said that there were seven boys. So there's definitely some branches missing from the tree. It wasn't completely accurate. I don't know exactly how many children there were in the little family, but there were at least 10 and most of them were boys. By the time Earl reached adulthood, he had watched four of his six brothers die by violence, three at the hands of white men, one of whom was lynched by a gang of white men. Reynolds is a tiny town in Georgia. Today, it's got a population of just over a 1,000 people, so probably only a few hundred or so in the early 1900s, if that. It's located kind of right in the middle of the state, about 100 miles south of Atlanta, So quiet, hole-in-the-wall, southern town where the locals pretty much did what they wanted. Earl's fear and anger following the murders of his brothers led him to the doorstep of Marcus Garvey, a political activist from Jamaica who founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association and the African Communities League. To way oversimplify for the sake of time, Marcus Garvey's philosophy was separate but equal— He wasn't into the idea of ending segregation. He wanted the black population to form their own communities separate from the white man. He preached about black pride and black power, which were dangerous concepts in many parts of the world in the early 1900s, especially in the South. Earl Little became a follower of Marcus Garvey's, and he soon began to rise within the ranks of the UNIA. In 1909, when he was 19, Earl married his first wife, Daisy Mason. Together, they had three children. Earl became a Baptist minister, and he eventually found himself in Montreal, Canada, working as an ambassador for the UNIA. There, he met Louise Langdon, a beautiful woman seven years his junior, who was also involved in the movement. Like Earl, Louise did not have the most peaceful upbringing, Louise was born on May 9th, 1897 in St. Andrew, Granada. I probably said that wrong. I don't know how to say that. I'm sorry. Her mother, Edith Langdon, was 11. 11. Edith was raped by an old-ass Scottish piece of shit by the name of Edward Norton, and baby Louise was the result. 
born to an 11-year-old. Louise was raised by her grandparents, and in 1917, she emigrated to Montreal, Canada, where she was first introduced to Garveyism and the UNIA. On May 10, 1919, the day after her 22nd birthday, Louise married Earl Little. In 1920, the couple had their first child, a son named Wilfred, and they moved from Canada to Philadelphia in search of a better life. A year later, they moved again, this time to Omaha, Nebraska. There, the Littles continued their works with the UNIA. Earl became the president of the local chapter, and Louise was the secretary and branch reporter. They began to advocate for the Back to Africa movement, which encouraged encouraged, encouraged Black people to leave the United States and relocate to Africa to find true freedom. Earl and Louise had lots more babies, seven together in total, but their involvement with the Marcus Garvey movement drew them quite a bit of unwanted attention. The Klan was raging in Nebraska in the 1920s, and Earl Little was not the type of man who flew under the radar. Not only because he was so outspoken in his activism, but because he was a six foot four, very dark skinned black man with one eye. So, yeah, Earl Little, an easy guy to spot, an easy guy to track. One night in 1925, when Earl was away for work, the KKK decided to pay a visit to the little home. Louise was eight months pregnant with her fourth child at the time, so she was hugely pregnant and home alone with three very young children. The Klansmen gave Louise a warning for her husband because, of course, they were too big of pussies to warn Earl directly they went after his pregnant wife while he was gone. The warning was along the lines of, tell your husband to keep his mouth shut and stop causing trouble. Before they left the house, the Klansmen circled the house on their horses, torches and shotguns in hand, and used the butts of their gun to smash out every window in the home. Earl Little was not an easily shakable man, but this encounter shook him, so he and his family left Nebraska and moved to Wisconsin. But, as previously stated, Earl Little stood out in a crowd, and his reputation preceded him. So the Little family did not have an easy time of it in Wisconsin either, and in 1928, they relocated again, this time to Lansing, Michigan. Here, the Black Legion was waiting for them. The Black Legion was essentially a radicalized sect of the Ku Klux Klan that wore black hoods instead of white ones. Yes, you heard me right. A radicalized sect of a radicalized uh, hate group. So, real bad. Much more violent. Much more dangerous. And they were right here in good old Lansing. Originally from eastern Ohio, the Black Legion was a group of vigilante white supremacists that formed to serve as protection for the KKK. So these assholes were the bodyguards for the KKK. Uh, Let me tell you how ridiculous they looked in their uniforms. I'll post some pictures on the SoDead website, but they basically wore all black. I wouldn't even call it a black hood because it literally looked like they stuck black pillowcases over their faces and cut out eye holes, like like bad, like cut out the eye holes in the mouth hole. 
And then they had these hats that looked like, literally, like pirate hats from a kid's costume. They were like that black, curvy, with a skull, a really crude, like, skull and crossbone on the front. And they had the skull and crossbone patch on their shoulder. They look like really bad pirate costumes. And I just can't even... Ridiculous. Just ridiculous. Anyway. In the 1930s, the FBI estimated that the Black Legion was about 135,000 members strong, including a large number of politicians and law enforcement officials, the Detroit police chief among them. Surprise, surprise. The Black Legion was dangerously lethal, despite their ridiculous costumes, and they were believed to be responsible for the deaths of activists and people of color all across the Midwest. The Black Legion set their sights on the Little family pretty much immediately upon their arrival in Lansing, and they referred to Earl Little as an uppity Negro who was causing trouble among the good Negroes of Lansing. But the Littles were not going to be run out of yet another town by a bunch of white bully man babies. So Earl purchased a home on Lansing's north side in what was called the Westmont subdivision, and he had plans to open a little shop in the area. He continued his work with the UNIA while Louise stayed home and raised the couple's children because they had a lot of them by this point. In 1929, the Littles found themselves in a bitter land dispute with property developers who claimed that while Earl could legally own his home in the Westmont subdivision, he couldn't legally reside in it as Westmont was designated as a whites-only neighborhood. The courts, not shockingly, sided with the white development company and ordered the Little family out of the home that they'd been allowed to purchase but couldn't live in. The development company didn't offer to buy the house back. Nope, they still expected Earl to pay that mortgage on the house that they forced him out of because of the color of his skin. Motherfuckers. Seriously, I know this sounds like fake news, but it's not. It all happened. Earl was not about to roll over for these racist land developers and a court system that was trying to steal his house from him. He'd been ordered to move to a black neighborhood, But he stood his ground. He was not going any fucking where. So the Black Legion took matters into their own hands. One night in November of 1929, Earl awoke to the sound of glass breaking against his house. He grabbed his shotgun and ran to the front door just in time to see two white men running away from the house. While Earl's first instinct was to go after the men, there was a more immediate problem. His house was on fire with his wife and all of their babies inside. Earl and Louise worked quickly to get all of the children out to safety while their home caved in around them. As they stood outside in their underwear, in November, in Michigan, mind you, so it's probably fucking cold, they're crying, they're watching their house burn to the ground. The police and fire officials that arrived on scene didn't offer the family aid or comfort. Instead, they laughed and joked as they watched the house burn. And when Earl told them his story, they were more interested in seeing his gun and making sure it was a legal firearm than they were in figuring out who had just tried to burn an entire family in the middle of the night. And then, with zero evidence, they arrested Earl and charged him with arson. Their theory was that he burned the house down as a way to get out of the whole, you still have to pay for it, but you can't live in it ordeal. 
If the house burned to the ground, the insurance company would pay off the mortgage. There was zero evidence that Earl started the fire, of course, so he was quickly released from custody, but his claim that he saw two white men set the fire was not taken seriously, and the fire was officially ruled an accident. The Black Legion got what they wanted. The Littles left Lansing. They didn't go far, though. They moved to East Lansing, where Blacks were not allowed outside after dark, and not surprisingly, they didn't get a very warm welcome there either. They were still under the watchful eye of the Black Legion everywhere they went. Eventually, Earl purchased a four-acre plot of land just south of where the Lansing city limit was at the time. Today, that site is located at the intersection of Jolly and MLK, which is very much inside the city limits, but back then it was just outside of Lansing. With his own two hands, Earl built a solid four-bedroom home for his family of nine, They had a garden, and they raised chickens and rabbits. They sold their produce and game to bring in extra money. Once again, the little family began to put down roots, determined to make them stick. But on September 28, 1931, the little family suffered a trauma from which they could not recover. As he did a few times a week, 41-year-old Earl set out that morning to collect money owed to him for the chicken, rabbit meat, and produce that he sold in the community. This day, however, Louise didn't want her husband to go. Uh, Louise was described as having the gift of sight so she could see the future. It was a trait that she was said to have passed down to more than one of her children. And that morning, she had a premonition that something awful was going to happen to Earl. So she tried to prevent him from leaving. But he ignored her hysterics. And as she stood in the doorway yelling after him, his figure growing smaller and smaller down the long driveway, He turned to wave goodbye. That was the last exchange Earl Little would have with his wife. All day, Louise was beside herself with worry, pacing, crying, waiting. It was 1931. Cell phones weren't a thing, obviously. Uh, There was no way to get into contact with Earl. He just would come back when he came back. Uh, But dinner time came and went. Earl still was not home. Bedtime for the kids came and went. Earl still was not home. In the middle of the night, the children were awakened by the sound of Louise screaming. They ran out into the living room to find their mother flanked by police officers. There had been a horrible accident, the officers told the family. Earl had been found lying across the tracks that ran down the center of Michigan Avenue at the center of Michigan and Detroit Street. If you're local to Lansing and you're trying to picture that, it's going to be just before Frandor, across the street from Feldman Chevrolet, the restaurant, the People's Kitchen is kind of right on the corner there, too, of Michigan and Detroit, so right right in that area. Earl was found lying in the street, across the tracks, his body badly mangled. One side of his head was caved in, and his body had been nearly severed in half. He was in the hospital, still clinging to life. By the time Louise reached the hospital, he had died. His body was taken back to Reynolds, Georgia for burial. So for all of the traveling he did in his life, Earl wound up back home in the end. The coroner ruled Earl's death an accident almost immediately, despite the fact that his injuries did not match up with having been hit by a streetcar. The life insurance company ruled the death a suicide so that they wouldn't have to pay out on Earl's policy. Only one of his policies was honored. So this was a man with 10 children, 
three from his first marriage, seven from his second, whose life was regularly threatened. So, of course, he had, you know, multiple insurance policies. He wanted to make sure his family was taken care of if anything ever happened to him. The big one, of course, was the one that refused to pay out. So Louise only got payment from a smaller policy. She got a total of $18 a month to take care of seven children. That would be the equivalent of about $300 a month today. So not nearly a fucking enough. So police say it's an accident. Insurance company says it's a suicide. But everybody in town knew that Earl had been murdered by the Black Legion. They'd been threatening his life since the day he arrived in Lansing. It was widely believed that Earl had been bludgeoned with a hammer, which would explain the head wounds, and then tossed onto the tracks where a very unobservant streetcar driver unwittingly ran him over, severing his body in two and destroying all evidence of the murder. I want to read to you word for word this article from the Lansing State Journal in 1931 about Earl's death. The headline was, Man Run Over by Streetcar, Earl Little, 41, Fatally Hurt, Thought to Have Fallen Under Truck, Coroner Plans Inquest, Believe Negro Lost Life Because He Forgot Coat, Left Earlier Car. So those are all like the sub-headlines. There's a fucking lot of them. Anyway, here's the article. Earl Little, 41, living at Jolly Corners, sustained fatal injuries late Monday night when he was run over by a streetcar at Detroit Street and East Michigan Avenue, a block east of the city limits. The car was operated by William Hart, who told coroner Ray Gorsline that he did not see the man before the accident. It is believed that Earl fell under the rear trucks as he was running for the car. So he was running to catch the car and fell between the front wheels and the back wheels, and just the back wheels ran him over. No. Coroner Gorsline found that Little had taken another car, which passed about 12 minutes before the car operated by Hart. He reached for his pocket when he boarded it, but told the motorman to let him off at the next corner. He did not have an overcoat on at this time, it was said, but did have an overcoat on when the accident occurred. Went back for coat. It is believed that he discovered that he had forgotten his coat when he reached for his purse and that he got off the car to go back for it. The coroner has been unable to discover if he left the coat. When he was found, his purse and a streetcar check were in the overcoat pocket. Coroner Gorslein planned to summon a coroner's jury for an inquest and expected to take the members of the jury to the scene of the accident Tuesday forenoon. Little, a Negro, leaves a widow, Mrs. Louise Little, ten children, the parents, Mr. and Mrs. John Little of Reynolds, Georgia, three sisters, and a brother, James Little of Albion. Funeral services will be at the Buck Funeral Home Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock. The body will be taken to Georgia for interment. So, draw your own conclusions, but it certainly, to me, sounds like a very convoluted story that was being concocted to cover up the truth, that it was a racially motivated killing, not an accident, because they sure inferred a lot. They made up this whole story about, well, he reached for his pocket, but he forgot his purse. So he went, got off that car and went to get on another one to get his coat. 
and he was trying to catch it and he slipped between the wheels. All of this being assumed over things that nobody saw. Nobody, like, nobody saw any of this. It's just, you know, sounds suspicious to me. Whatever happened, Earl Little was gone and Louise Little was alone with seven children and $18 a month to raise them on. For perspective, when Earl was murdered, his and Louise's children were 11, 10, 8, 6, 4, 3, and 2. So they were not grown or almost grown by any means. They were all still babies. Louise rented out part of her garden to neighbors. The kids hunted game on their land and sold it. For years, the family just barely scraped by. By 1937, Louise was dating again. She believed she and this man she was dating were going to be married. But when she became pregnant with his child, he vanished, leaving her a single mother to now eight children. And that was the final straw for Louise. Louise, whose very existence was the result of horrific violence. Her mother, an 11-year-old girl who'd been raped by a white man. Louise, who'd moved all over North America trying to outrun the deadly racist regime that had her family in its sights. Louise, whose husband's murder at the hands of white supremacists had been covered up by the very community she was raising her children in. Louise, who'd been left with $18 a month to care for seven children. Being abandoned by a man she loved, a man she thought she could trust, a man whose child she was carrying— It broke her. Shortly after the birth of her son Robert in 1938, 41-year-old Louise Little, a widowed and single mother of eight, was committed to the Kalamazoo State Hospital following a nervous breakdown. There, she would remain for nearly 25 years. When Louise was committed, her son Wilfred was 19, daughter Hilda was 18, son Filbert was 16, son Malcolm was 14, son Reginald was 12, Son Wesley was 11, daughter Yvonne was 10, and little Robert was still just a baby. The two eldest children were able to live on their own, but the younger kids were split up and put into foster care, where they remained until they became of age. The story of the little family's time in mid-Michigan is hard to stomach. The racism, the injustice, the violence. These are not things that we want to associate with the city we call home, but it happened. In fact, the Little family's story is hardly unique for the time. I would even go so far as to say there were others who probably went through much worse. The only reason that the plight of the Little family has been retold over time and not lost to history is because of the impact their experience had on the rest of the world. No doubt, having your house burned and your father murdered by white supremacists then watching officials try to blame your father for those acts, watching your mother finally break from the weight of it all and lose her mind, having your family utterly destroyed because of the color of their skin, that trauma shaped the lives of the little children. And one of the boys, the one Louise was pregnant with when the KKK ambushed her house in Nebraska and threatened her and her children, the one who was said to be his father's favorite and often got to join his dad at the UNIA meetings, the one who was just six years old when his father was murdered on a Lansing street corner. He went on to make his own mark on the world. 
But we don't know him by his given name, Malcolm Little. We know him by the name he gave himself, Malcolm X. That's right, friends. Malcolm X's father was murdered by white supremacists right here in Lansing, Michigan. I think I take for granted the fact that people just know Malcolm X grew up in Lansing because that is news to some folks as well. Uh, He was just a toddler, two, three years old when his family moved here. He lived on the north side of town until he was four when the house was burned down. He lived in East Lansing for a little bit, and then he spent most of his childhood in the house that his father built near what is now the Jolly MLK intersection in South Lansing. There is a historical marker at the site, but it's a bit hard to spot if you're just driving by because it's right next to and almost kind of behind the sign for the townhouses that are located on that corner now. And can we talk for just a second about how the home of Malcolm X is on a street that was renamed after Martin Luther King Jr.? That's how little attention Malcolm's legacy receives in Lansing. So when I was a kid, it was called Logan Street. Logan was named after Civil War General John A. Logan. For those not from the area, Logan is one of the main streets in Lansing. It's one of the main arteries. And renaming it was a big deal. In 1989, on my ninth birthday, actually, according to the internet, a proposal was adopted to rename Logan Street Martin Luther King Boulevard. And I'm just... I'm so curious about that conversation because the people involved in the decision-making had to know that this was the street that Malcolm X grew up on. Why, if we're going to rename it, is it not being renamed Malcolm X Street? I don't understand. Name a different street after MLK. Name the street that Malcolm X grew up on after Malcolm X. But no, Uh, Malcolm X's home site is now located on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Malcolm X Street didn't come to Lansing until 2010 when a portion of Main Street near downtown was renamed after him. So the day that I started writing this episode, I had to kind of stop midway to go run some errands. And just during the course of my running around, I drove past the site where Earl Little was murdered. I drove past the site of the Little Home. I drove past the elementary school that Malcolm went to, and I drove down Malcolm X Street for a little bit. And none of it was intentional. I wasn't purposefully sightseeing for my episode. I was just getting shit done. But that's how much of a part of Lansing's history Malcolm X is, and it's just not talked about enough, and it's crazy to me. Well, at least it wasn't when I was growing up, because I didn't learn any of this in school. Malcolm went to Pleasant Grove Elementary School, which was right on the corner of Pleasant Grove and Holmes Road. The building is still there. I'm not sure what it is today. It's been a lot of things over the years. Um, It is actually right down the street from the house that I grew up in. So if it had still been an elementary school when I was a kid, it was not at that time. I think it was completely abandoned when I was a kid. That's where I would have gone. That's how close it was to my house. It's actually the elementary school that my father went to. I'm pretty sure that I've mentioned before, uh, I grew up in the same house that my dad grew up in. So same neighborhood and schools and all that growing up. He is 30-some years younger than Malcolm X, so it's not like they crossed paths or anything. But my dad was a student at Pleasant Grove Elementary when Malcolm X was Malcolm X, you know, during his heyday and when he was assassinated. So The fact that Malcolm was a student at Pleasant Grove School was a big deal at the time. It was talked about a lot. 
And then by the time I was a kid, it, I only knew because my dad remembered and would talk about it, but it wasn't really taught or talked about in school by the time I was coming up through the system, if that makes sense. Anyway, after Malcolm's mother was institutionalized when he was 14, Malcolm was sent to live in a detention home in Mason due to behavioral issues. He attended Mason Junior High in 7th and 8th grade. He was one of very few black students at the school. There were only a couple others, and they were a lot younger than him. They were in the elementary school, so he was the only black student at the junior high. Uh, So he faced constant, constant racism, but he was also very popular because he was different. So he played on the school's basketball team. He had the highest GPA in the school. He was elected class president. So he he tried. I mean, he worked hard. But the racism from teachers, peers, parents, it just crushed his spirit. And it took away all of his motivation to do anything. And he started having problems again, behavioral and, and the like. So after eighth grade, he moved out to Boston with his older half-sister, Ella, who acted as his guardian the last few years of his childhood. I mentioned earlier that Malcolm's mother was said to have the gift of sight and that she passed that gift on to some of her children. Malcolm was one of those children. In his autobiography, which he was working on with journalist Alex Haley when he was killed, he alluded several times to believing that he was going to be murdered for his work as an activist. And as we all know, that's exactly what happened. On February 19th, 1965, Malcolm told a reporter that the Nation of Islam was actively trying to kill him. Two days later, as he was preparing to address a crowd gathered at the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan, three men rushed the stage from the audience and began firing, one with a sawed-off shotgun, the other two with semi-automatic handguns. Malcolm was rushed to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead at the age of 39. He'd been shot 21 times. He left behind a wife and six children. So he was right about his dad's age when he too was murdered and left behind a large family. Just history repeating itself, which is really sad. The three men convicted of Malcolm X's murder, Talmadge Hayer, Norman 3X Butler, and Thomas 15X Johnson, were all members of the Nation of Islam. In 2020, Netflix put out a docuseries called Who Killed Malcolm X, which reexamines the case. Partly because of this documentary, and partly because of some new evidence that came to light, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office launched a new investigation into the assassination of Malcolm X, which is still ongoing. What new evidence, you ask? A man named Ray Wood was an undercover police officer for the NYPD at the time of Malcolm's murder. On his deathbed, he wrote a letter confessing that the NYPD and the FBI were involved in the plot to assassinate Malcolm X. Wood claimed that he was tasked with arresting all of the members of Malcolm's security detail in the days leading up to the event at the Audubon Ballroom, which meant that there was no door security at the event, and those pulling security that day were not Malcolm's usual protectors. So kind of think like... The chaos that ensues in a classroom when there's a substitute teacher? Like that, only with guns and armed assassins. The new investigation into the assassination of Malcolm X is still ongoing, so keep an eye out for more news on that. This episode, obviously, is very sparse on its Malcolm X facts and history, but that's because this story isn't about him. It's about his father, Earl Little, 
who was murdered on the streets of the city I grew up in. One really interesting thing I found while I was researching Earl Little's background. So I always give you, you know, just a little bit of backstory on the towns that we talk about, right? Where they are, what the population is, is it a big city, a little podunk town, etc. Well, when I looked up Reynolds, Georgia, the town that Earl was born in to get facts about it, I found something. There was a section right at the beginning that listed notable people from Reynolds, and there were only two. Earl Little and Samuel Little. Relatives, of course, right? There's only like a thousand people in Reynolds, Georgia. So two men named Little, they've got to be related. And I'm working quickly. You know, lots of people in Malcolm X's family are notable for different reasons. So I figured that Samuel Little was like a brother or an uncle or something, right? No, no, no. (laughs) Nope. It took a few minutes for this to click for me. But when I figured it out, I think that I screamed out loud because (laughs) I was so shocked. Samuel Little is believed to be the most prolific serial killer in American history. You know the guy, the one that drew all of those creepy fucking drawings of his victims with the crazy looking eyes that just seeing the pictures gives us nightmares. Um, Many of these women have still not been connected to actual crimes, although they've used, I think, at least one of them to solve a cold case. Samuel Little actually just died in prison at the end of 2020, like the very, very end of 2020. So that's one good thing that the year of awful gave to us. Uh, Samuel claimed to have killed 93 women. His first arrest for murder was in Mississippi in 1982, but those charges were dropped. He was arrested again in 1984 for kidnapping and strangling two women in California, both of whom survived. He served two and a half years that time. And then in 2012, he was arrested at a homeless shelter in Louisville, Kentucky, after DNA tied him to three California cold cases of women that were murdered in the 80s. He was convicted of those three murders in 2014, and in 2018, he decided to come clean, and he began confessing to murders all over the country. He drew pictures, gave names and locations and details where he could remember them. He confessed to the murders of 93 women in total. And this was not some Henry Lee Lucas bullshit where it was like, oh, yeah, I totally did that. Yep, did that one too. Give me her name. Yep, killed her. These were all deemed credible confessions with details that only the killer would know, many of which led to the solving of decades-old cold cases. But before all of that, Samuel Little was a newborn baby born in a jail cell to a sex worker who later dumped him on the side of the road as an infant in Reynolds, Georgia. Little has said in interviews that he was related to Malcolm X, but given the enormity of the other things he says, like, I killed almost 100 women, that fact just kind of flies under the radar quite a bit. But he's got to be telling the truth, right? In a town that small, people that share a last name have to be related. Samuel Little was born in 1940, which makes him 15 years younger than Malcolm X, if I'm doing my math right. So he's got to be like a cousin or a second cousin, maybe. I'm sure that the answer's out there somewhere. I just didn't put a ton of time into this part of the story because, again, this story is not about Samuel Little. It's about Earl Little. Maybe I need to do one on Samuel Little one of these days, though. Maybe I will. Anyway, that is the story 
of one of Lansing's most important and most least discussed murders, the murder of Malcolm X's father, Earl Little, at the hands of white supremacists. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. Some of my resources for today's episode were the autobiography of Malcolm X, history.com, and brothermalcolm.net. You can find a full list of resources on the page for this episode on the SoDead website. And now it's time for a little liquid cheese. You don't need it, but you're going to have some anyway because it's just so good. <laughs> I am really trying to keep these crime-related, but I am running out of those. I thought that I was out of them after the last episode, but then I remembered one more. So this week, I'm going to tell you about a time that I had the police called on me. So from 2007 to 2012, right after my divorce, I lived with my kids in a townhouse in Grand Ledge. And it was a super, it was perfect, you know, for the rebuilding. I didn't have to worry about repairs. I, you know, all that was covered. I didn't have to shovel or mow or any of that stuff. It was just a nice, tidy little place for me to start over, for me and the kids to start over. We had good neighbors. There was a pool. The playground was right out our back door. So it was like we had a big play set in our backyard. Um, it was all easy going until maybe three, four years in. We lived there for five years and this was right towards the end. So this elderly couple moved in next door with a big old black lab Big dogs don't belong in townhouses or apartments because it's just not kind to them. He didn't have room to run around. They couldn't let him, you know, just roam. So the townhouse was little. There was no yard area. They didn't take him for a lot of walks because they were old. So he was just this ball of energy barking all the time. But anyway, that's not the point of the story. Um, right from the beginning, things were crazy because these people screamed at each other at the top of their lungs, this old couple, 24-7, just screamed at each other. Sometimes it sounded like the old lady was being murdered. I'm not exaggerating. They gave off a bad vibe. I was very uncomfortable. I always told the boys, you know, if they even try to talk to you, come directly home don't talk to them. Tell me if they ever say anything to you. I just, my mommy red flags were all the way up with these people from the beginning. So a few months into them being there, I get a knock on the door and I open the door and there's a police officer standing there. I'm like, what the hell is happening? You know, I don't like, my kids are little, they're home. I, what's what? And just the look on his face, he looked so defeated. And he tells me that um, he's received a report of a larceny and I've been named as the prime suspect. Well, not like police suspect, but by the person that called in the complaint. And I was like, what are you talking about? What's happening now? Um, so... This old guy next door called the police because he thought someone stole the shovel that he used, the rusty old shovel that he used to clean up his dog's shit. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. He thought, <laughs> he thought someone stole his poop shovel and he thought that I 
stole his poop shovel. We didn't even have a dog at this time, number one, so I didn't have a need for a poop shovel, nor did I have a need for a shovel that had previously been a poop shovel. What happened was this fucking idiot put it up again because, you know, all of, we had these little um, half fence partitions between everybody's sliding glass doors. He leaned it up against someone's a couple doors down instead of leaning it up against his own. But he called the police and told them that I stole his poop shovel from him. So he also called the police one day at about five o'clock in the afternoon because my children were playing too loud. And then he called them one final time on the day he was moving out because I parked in his parking spot in a parking lot with unassigned parking. Instead of just asking me, hey, can you move so we can back in this U-Haul he called the police. So yeah, I got the police call on me three times by this crazy ass old man that got kicked out for being a crazy ass old man. And then until I, I want to say it had to be towards the very end. Cause I want to say that we weren't there for maybe another six months after they got kicked out because the whole time that we were still there and we were getting ready to move after they got kicked out at least once a day, I saw them drive, like creep drive through the parking lot, staring. Creepy ass people. If I knew their names, I would tell you what they were so that you could be aware of them or go scold them if you know them because that was a, not not a good time. Anyway, um, so in the Facebook group for this week's Liquid Cheese post, I want you to tell me about a time that you either called the police or had the police called on you. The more ridiculous the reason, the better. I think that's it for today. Uh, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to So Dead wherever you listen. And make sure that you're following So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash So Dead podcast. Lots of fun new stuff going on over there. And there's also the So Dead podcast discussion group on Facebook that is pretty fun. A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. So